Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I think I'm summing up the views of the people I've worked for and value and cherish for nearly 50 years. This is what to do with it, presiding officer. This is what to do with it. I do it now. That is what the people of Scotland, who have great affection for our fishermen, want to happen and what should happen and what I believe will happen at some stage or another. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. Lovely to be with you. It's Wednesday the 3rd of May. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thank you for being with us. If you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. We dive into Scottish politics with those who have lived it and breathed it and indeed those who are at the heart of it right now. Welcome. Press follow, press subscribe, be part of Hollywood Sources. We'd love to have you there as we crack on every single week. There is plenty to keep us talking. And uh, in order to steer us through, we've assembled the best and the brightest. Andy McKeever's here, former director of communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. The best and the brightest, did you just say? Yeah, you can choose okay. whether you're. Good morning. The, you can choose whether you're the best or the brightest, because Jeff Aberdeen, former chief of I'll staff to, to Alex. I'll wait till I hear Jeff's contribution <laughs> before I decide. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Aberdeen, Alex Salmon's former chief of staff, is either the best or the brightest. Hello, Jeff. I'm feeling a lot brighter today. <laughs> Hello. Well, do you know Jeff was on time as well today, just as a behind-the-scenes glimpse. I think he's, he had a reputation building for being a bit late for recordings, but he sauntered in quite early, so that's good. Uh, and we do have a special guest with us as well. More importantly, uh, good afternoon as we're recording, and welcome to the podcast, Joanna Cherry, SNP MP. Hello, Joanna. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You are both the best and the brightest, indeed, I should say. So Jeff and Andy have to dish it out between them. But, you know, we're just very glad to have you on the podcast. Well, you're certainly the best and the brightest in this company. That is for sure. (laughs) No question. (laughs) Uh, It's great to have you there, Joanna. As is tradition, we're going to do a few minutes of just chewing chewing a bit of the fat with Jeff and Andy. And that will get us all uh, into the run of the week and the rhythm of the week. And I suppose, Andy, I want to start with you because the Scottish Conservative Party Conference um, happened last weekend. You might be forgiven for not noticing. But at the same time, there was actually a bit of a ruckus that we should talk about that got a bit of attention um, uh, during the Scottish Conservative Party conference when it came to journalists, 
access to the Prime Minister, etc. You've lived it. You've been at Scottish Conservative conferences before. Analyse for us what happened last weekend and how familiar is it? What happened last weekend is just another example of what happens to some degree or other every single year at Scottish Conservative Conference, which is that the uh, London leaders' people um, come to Scotland and tell us, we Scottish Tory people, how to do things. And that's been happening for ever since I've been involved. I was first involved with David McCletchie 22 years ago. And it happens every single year at Tory party conference where the leaders press people decide they know how to handle the Scottish media better than the Tory Scottish Tory press officers know how to handle the Scottish media. And their idea this year was to pick six reporters from friendly newspapers and speak to them and them alone. That went down, as you can imagine, like the proverbial bucket of cold sick with everybody else. Uh, and the reporters from those six titles sided with their friends and colleagues at the other titles and effectively at one point were in a standoff and refusing to speak to the Prime Minister at all. So they eventually came to a solution about an hour and a half later, after everybody had tweeted about it, uh, that everybody would be able to be in the press conference and to listen to what Rishi Sunak was saying. That was uh, not, uh, not until, of course, the press officers had asked all the Scottish reporters to delete all tweets saying that they had been refused access to the Prime Minister. So it doesn't matter, of course, what Rishi Sunak now said in that press conference, which also wasn't great, it has to be said. Uh, but the big story of the weekend was that Rami Douglas Ross, to be fair to him, was pretty strong on it. It was clearly extremely angry and made that publicly known that he was angry and said he'd be raising it with Downing Street um, and the Prime Minister. London just gives you a problem mm. um, and you're very lucky to come out of Scottish Tory conference without bleeding. I have to say, from a kind of journalist point of view, what strikes me about this is, one, that you wouldn't predict that the journalists would all club together and take a stand because no one has an ego like a journalist who's about to get access to the Prime Minister. I think that's the first thing. So why why you wouldn't predict it? Uh, so, so, you know, just cut it off at the pass. Be aware of what's about to happen. To add fuel to the fire, to ask to delete the tweets, to kind of keep pressing and keep pressing is just complete nonsense. I just don't understand how you can't plan for that. As Andy was saying, Jeff, this does happen at Scottish Tory conferences almost relentlessly without fail. Yeah, they, they never learn. And, you know, when I was listening to uh, Andy speak there, I was reminded about the run-up to the referendum in 2014, uh, where we had a cabinet standoff. Uh, David Cameron took his cabinet up to Aberdeen and held, uh, held it in the confines of Shell's HQ. And uh, 30 miles down the road, uh, the Scottish Government held the, the, their public meeting cabinet in a church in Port Lethen and, and made sure it was accessible to, to the public and the, the media alike. Of course, the UK government were very selective in who they gave interviews to, uh, and we just dined out on that and just uh, it gave us great ammunition to paint the contrast between accessible government, the type of country that we wanted to be, and one that was very closed off and representing narrow interests. It has been happening day in, day out for some considerable time. And, and I think when you get a situation when Ruth Davidson, Murdo Fraser, Adam Tompkins and other senior Tories in Scotland are head in hands criticising their own colleagues down south, it's high time they actually listen to them because it gave great opportunity for the SNP and other opposition to uh, highlight a party that is very, very within itself. There's an important aspect to it as well that goes well beyond that you know, two-hour ruckus between the Downing Street press officers and the press. And that is that 
the UK Tory party is a ball and chain around the ankles of the Scottish Tory party. This is not new at all. The, the difficulty for the Scottish Tory party is that much as they might want to talk about issues up here and health and education and tax and all these things, they can't because their job in life, their first role is as the first line of defence uh, for what's happening in London. And you saw a perfect illustration of it actually on the BBC's Sunday show uh, with Martin Geisler, the Sunday before conference, where Craig Hoy, the MSP and Tory party chairman in Scotland, who is an, a very able guy, a nice guy and a very able guy and a real asset to the MSP group. He had seven minutes prime time with Martin Geisler. The first two minutes were about Dominic Rabb. The second two minutes were about Francis Maud. The third two minutes, minute five and six, were about David Frost, which I know Jeff is delighted about. We'll probably talk about him in a minute. Uh, and the final minute was about whether or not Alistair Jack supported the Scotch whiskey industry. Nothing about the SNP, nothing about the Scottish government, nothing about Scotland at all. And that was it. The interview was gone. And that has been happening for 24 years. And it will happen for the next 24 years as well. It's, it's so fascinating. You mentioned David Frost, actually. Let's let's consider David Frost, who was, of course, the Conservative uh, Brexit negotiator, the Brexit deal, remember those days, and also former Cabinet Office Minister, who uh, really doubled down, actually, on something that he's, he's nudged at before. This is the most recent column from David Frost, saying Scotland has too much power, urged the UK government to be more, quote, assertive in its attacks on devolution, and argued that the UK Internal Market Act, quote, has not been used assertively as it should. He spoke about the SNP's, quote, implosion, providing an opportunity to revisit the devolution settlement which created the Scottish and Welsh Parliament. Here's a quote. He was writing in The Telegraph, and Lord Frost said, We, the Conservative Party and the Conservative government, have allowed this to happen. It's time to fix it. Ministers should make clear that if re-elected, they will review and roll back some currently devolved powers. Now, if you listen very carefully in the background, that's Jeff Aberdeen's engines revving. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, go. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I think we now might, may know where some of the uh, alleged missing funds from the SNP have gone to because David Frost is clearly a, a sleeper agent for the SNP. I mean, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, uh, there is a golden rule in politics that you you don't interrupt opponent uh, when they're in a, a deep stook, uh, which is is what the SNP you know uh, are just now in terms of the various crises that they are facing, and yet. Uh, he's thought it wise to, to write and opine his views about uh, devolution uh, and rolling back powers uh, from Holyrood. I mean, it, it really wasn't helpful if you're of a Conservative Party persuasion. Uh, and it's really quite nonsensical. Uh, and I thought, actually, the fact that most of his colleagues, not just north of the border, but south of the border, distanced themselves from it very, very quickly. Indeed, the biggest problem for the, the, the Tories north of the border uh, since devolution has been that perception, particularly in the, 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 the immediate years following uh, the 97 referendum, was that they were opposed to devolution altogether. And they've tried to wear themselves off of that um, perception ever since. And I thought they've done quite a good job, actually, particularly since 2007 under Annabel Goldie uh, and since then under Ruth Davidson as well. But this sort of stuff is just manner from heaven uh, if you're the SNP. Uh, and they'll right, rightly uh, remind 
uh, people, the public of this, every given opportunity. But I am most interested to hear uh, of our special guest views on this. Yeah, Joanna, uh, welcome to the podcast. And what a great time to bring you in uh, to consider David Frost, who, by the way, went on to say, in particular, Scotland does not need to be an independent actor on the world stage. It should not be able to legislate to disrupt free trade within the UK and it does not need to have most tax-raising powers currently available to it. I mean, he goes on and on and on about how devolution should be rolled back. What do you make of his intervention? I mean, I think the last thing that Scotland needs right now is a lecture on how we should be governed by an unelected Tory peer who undermined democracy in Northern Ireland and threatened the Good Friday Agreement with his inept deals negotiated when he was the chief Brexit negotiator. The Tories were quick out of the trap to condemn him. Uh, they must have been raging with him, as Jeff says. The SNP uh, is in a lot of difficulty at the moment. But, of course, what David Frost seemed to forget was, even if you look at the polls now, SNP support has gone down a bit, yes, but support for independence is holding up in the high 40s. More importantly, I think recent social attitudes surveys showed very high support for devolution. And back in 1997, we had a referendum which established it was the settled will of the Scottish people, you know, three quarters support for devolution in those days. That's the kind of support I'd like to see for independence. I'd like to see the SNP working to make independence the settled will of the Scottish people so that at a vote on independence, we could deliver a resounding majority so that, you know, we could really take as many people with us as possible. Getting back to... Frost, I mean, his attack on, on the SNP was really an, an opportunity for us in the SNP to remind people about all the problems the Conservatives had. You know, Frost himself is an unelected peer, uh, both the current Prime Minister, who I was just meeting earlier today, and the previous Prime Minister have convictions for breaking uh, the COVID regulations. We're currently awaiting an outco the outcome of an investigation into whether Boris Johnson uh, misled Parliament. We've had the havoc wreaked on the economy by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, and there's still multiple questions over donations from Russian donors and about some of the terrible deals on personal protective equipment during the COVID crisis. Again, if you look at the, the business grants, one billion, only 1% 1 of the 1 billion in business grants that went out to fraud during COVID has mm. been recovered. So it was a nice opportunity, David Frost's intervention, to uh, remind the Conservative Party of all the problems that they're currently labouring under and maybe take the SNP's uh, problems off the front pages for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I know. and it probably was only, only a couple of days. Go on, Andy, what do you want to say about that? Just to close that off, one thing that we should be aware of. So Jeff said earlier on that um, the elected politicians, the MSPs in particular, were out very quickly against David Frost, and they were. And the elected politicians know that what David Frost said is totally toxic. It's like a 10% strategy. It's not going anywhere at all. But do not underestimate how many rank-and-file members of this party will have agreed with every single word that David Frost said. Every single word. Mm. The elected members, they get it. They know that it's going nowhere. Mm. But the members of the party in Scotland as well, definitely down south, but in Scotland as well, they will like that because the DA, in the DNA of this party is a centralisation and an antipathy to devolution, not just to Scotland, but to everywhere else. That runs through this party and it doesn't leave them. So the members will have perfectly... There's a reason why it was sitting in the Telegraph by David Frost. The members yeah. will have loved it. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's playing to us uh, a small percentage of Scottish society, and you know, we don't know how members, how many members the Scottish Conservatives have. But I think Douglas Ross said six or seven thousand recently, which is less than Alba have, and Alba have only been in existence for a couple of years. So I thought that was quite an interesting stat. But I suppose. I don't, I'm not worried about what David Frost says. I think devolution is big enough to survive the challenges that any single party faces. I mean, it survived the death in office of Donald Dewar, the resignation of Henry McLeish, the collapse of Scottish Labour, and I think it will survive the difficulties in my party. Yeah. Reflecting on what Andy said there about, you know, there is a small constituency that this appeals to, doesn't make it any better. I mean, it's a, it's a silly strategy. So, so, so it's not a recipe for success. It's a recipe for failure. Mm. Um, and by espousing these views and appealing to that very small percentage, it's not going to help his cause or indeed his party's cause one bit. I wonder if what it does do, Joanna, is shine a bit of a light on what is the SNP's strategy for independence right now. Well, we don't really know. I mean, I don't know what the SNP's strategy for independence is at the moment. But in fairness to Hamza... He's not been in office very long. He's had an awful lot to deal with. And we do need to get that special conference rearranged that we were supposed to have before Nicola resigned and we had a truncated leadership election. But I think you're right to bring that up, Callum, because one of the things I find quite frustrating, one of the many things I find frustrating about the SNP's, what seems to be the SNP's current strategy, is too much of a focus on defending devolution and not a mu- not enough of a focus on recognising the shortcomings of devolution, and that's really why we want independence. You know, the party needs to stop banging its head off the brick wall of devolution, stop taking legal challenges on devolved issues against the British government, which it can't hope to win. If you're going to litigate um, as a politician, you need to litigate strategically. And you don't want the public get annoyed by too much constitutional litigation. You, You want to not use up your capital on hopeless causes. And if you are going to litigate, you need to think very long and hard about how you're going to do it. So, for example, in relation to what I consider to be the fiasco of the previous First Minister's approach to the United Kingdom Supreme Court and the issue of whether or not Holyrood had the competence to hold an independence referendum, I think that was done in a very cat-handed way. You know, I and others who thought there was a legitimate argument that Holyrood might have that competence had been arguing for years that we might want to test that. I didn't mean by going cap in hand to the Supreme Court and asking them the question with a Lord Advocate who wasn't sure what the answer was. And that's no disrespect to Lord Advocate. She's a friend mm. of mine. That was her opinion. I have the highest respect for her. Um, but, you know, if you're going to be litigating on an issue like that, what we should have had is, you know, Nicola could have selected a Lord Advocate who held the view that it was competent. She could have put a bill through Holyrood and then she could have defended that bill in the sort of trenchant way that Hamza's currently defending the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. The difference would have been that she would have had public buy-in as well as party buy-in. I don't think there's much public buy-in on the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. And I think that litigation is is probably doomed to fail. I don't approve of the British government blocking a bill passed by uh, Holyrood. I'd like to see problems made in Scotland sorted out in Scotland. But the harsh reality is it is a fact of devolution that the British Parliament is sovereign. It is a fact of devolution that Section 35 exists. No one ever made any issue about it before. When I was first elected and we were making numerous amendments to that Scotland bill after the NDREF, nobody tried to take out Section 35. Say no one ever really thought it would be used. Mm. But I think it's a fact of devolved parliaments around the world that occasionally the Supreme Parliament, its overlord, pulls the rug out from under their feet. 
That's why we support independence. So, of course, we should defend devolution, but I think the SNP needs to stop expending so much political capital, fighting battles that can't win over devolution, and instead apply its intellect and its energy to addressing the, the big issues that people who voted no in 2014 want answered before they be prepared to switch their votes to yes. Yeah, I, John, if I may, um, that's fascinating stuff. Obviously, your uh, legal background gives it such kind of prominence as well to this discussion. But, you know, one observation I have is that when uh, Nicola Sturgeon obviously uh, took the Supreme Court ruse, let's let's call it that, and failed, there was huge coverage, huge exposure of this issue as it went through uh, the legal hurdles, and then it was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, we commented on this podcast that when Hamza became leader, uh, he immediately called on the uh, Rishi Sunak to... Uh, allow him the powers to hold a referendum. And immediately the response came, no. And that was obviously to be anticipated. But the most interesting thing from my perspective was it barely got a column inch, you know? And, and it's becoming the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. And we're almost the boy that cried wolf. So I suppose my question to you then is, and you, you touched on there isn't, we don't yet know what the independent strategy is. You know, playing the ball where it lies, where things stand just now, what is the route forward to build the case for independence? Well, I think there's two separate things. There's the building of the case, and uh, I mean, they're interrelated, the two separate things. There's the building of the case, and I don't think the previous administration under the former leader did enough of that. But then there's also the thinking about how you actually deliver a vote for independence, how, how you deliver a, a mandate to negotiate with the British government. And on that point, I think um, it has been a terrible strategic error to constantly ask for a Section 30 order and constantly be knocked back, but more importantly, to frame the debate both at home and internationally in the context of devolution, which is 25 years old, when we're in a 300-year-old uh, union. It, it cannot be true as a matter of constitutional practice or precedent that the only way to end the union between Scotland and England is by utilising a section of a statute that's only 25 years old and relates to a modern phenomenon of devolution. So I think it was a huge mistake for Nicola to constantly talk about Section 30 as the gold standard, because it's helped him plant in the mind of voters in the United Kingdom, but also more importantly, or, or equally importantly, uh, foreign interrogatories, foreign governments, that unless there's another Section 30-backed referendum, somehow Scottish independence can't be legitimate. And I don't think that can be right as a point of constitutional theory. But I can tell you, when I'm talking to diplomats from other countries, it's very firmly implanted in their mind now that somehow any vote that's not backed by a Section 30 order will be somehow illegal or unlawful. And I think that's been a huge strategic error um, and, you know, the Edinburgh Agreement, yeah, it was great. And it was very much of its time. No doubt David Cameron conceded as much as he did in the Edinburgh Agreement because he didn't think that the yes side had a hope in hell of winning. Of course, the yes side came closer than a lot of people expected. So second time round, it's just not going to be so easy. And, you know, if you ask me what's the strategy to get to independence, I'd give you the very Irish answer. And I can say this as somebody who's an Irish citizen, so I'm not being, <laughs> being anti-Irish. I wouldn't be starting from here. You know, I really wouldn't be starting from here. But we are where we are. 
And I think the SNP has to have a, a conference behind closed doors on this issue. We don't need to discuss our strategy in public. We should be discussing it behind closed doors. But we need to have a proper strategic discussion. And, you know, some of us have been talking about alternative routes to delivering a mandate for independence for years. Whenever we tried to get it discussed on the conference floor, we were slapped down. A couple of my colleagues who tried to get the issue of a plebiscite referendum or a de facto referendum debated at the November 2019 conference, they were booed off the stage, something I've never seen happen at an SNP conference. I know it happened back in the days of the 79 group, but although I was going to meetings with my dad, I was still just a, a wee girl then, um, so I didn't see that. But this sort of undemocratic nonsense of booing people off stage and Nicola was really, really against talking about any of these issues. And then suddenly, when she lost the Supreme Court case, she just pulled out of a hat this de facto referendum. And nobody was more astonished than I was. And I can tell you, most of my colleagues were pretty astonished. It was just landed on us from left field. And mm. it was really a, a, an incredible strategic error from a politician who's otherwise, who was otherwise seen as so, as so sure-footed. I mean, I suppose to answer your question, Callum, I'm just, I cannot here on this podcast give you a definitive answer. What I can tell you is that I hope under new leadership, these issues are going to be properly debated and discussed and it's going to be more strategic thinking. In fairness to Hamza, he has said we need to move off process a bit and focus more on convincing people. Now, that's what Nicola said when she was first elected, but what's actually been done? Mm. You know, these policy papers that have been produced are absolutely lightweight stuff. Yeah, I know there's lots of successful, small, independent countries in Europe. And I think most of us know that, economically successful. But what our voters, what people in Scotland want to know is, how do we get from where we are just now, enmeshed in the United Kingdom, to being one of those successful countries? And that's where the difficult questions lie in relation to questions to do with currency, to do with pension payment, to do with cross-border trade, to do with mm. How long will it take us to get back into the EU? Do we sit in an association agreement while we do so? Blah, blah, blah. I think there's answers to all these questions. You know, in politics, there's never a right answer. There has to be an answer that can be justified and an argument that can be made. But the party's not put enough energy into doing that. And I really see this on the doorsteps of Edinburgh Southwest. I have so many constituents who vote for me, but are still not convinced of the case for independence. Mm -hmm. And who say to me, look, Joanna, I'm quite especially after Brexit, and still now after discussed with Boris Johnson and Liz Trust and worry that you know, Labour won't make it at the next election, still open to persuasion, but they need to be persuaded. And I just don't feel that I or my activists have had the ammunition to persuade these people. And, you know, I, I, well, I, I, I'm from uh, Joanna's constituency. As yeah, she knows, I'm from Curry. I've moved to Ian Murray's constituency, for which I apologise, Joanna, but... Shocking. Um, I know it is. What would you um, say if Ian Murray was on the podcast, actually, Andy? Well, I would say that it's wonderful that I live in Ian Murray's constituency. You know, I, but I think Joanna's highlighted exactly really where I am on this because Joanna's constituency is a really good illustration of where a lot of people in Scotland are. I mean, I, I voted no in 2014. I would vote no tomorrow if there, was an, if there was a referendum tomorrow, but not because I wear Union Jack cufflinks or fly a flag or sing God Save the King. I, I'm not. I'm just not a nationalistic person. I don't really care, to be honest, what's on my passport. It doesn't bother me. Um, I did it purely for pragmatic reasons. I didn't think there was an economic case. I thought that me and my family and lots of other families would simply be poorer. Not because yep. Scotland can't cope, because Scotland could be a very, very successful independent country, a very economically and socially successful independent country, but simply because I didn't think the policies were remotely there for us to achieve that. 
And the thing that I find, as good an electoral machine as the SNP has been for the last nine years, the thing that I've always found really quite mesmerising is why absolutely nothing has been done to persuade people in my situation, people who are non-partisan, pretty much middle-ish, but who voted no, nothing has been done to persuade us to vote yes. Nothing has been done on the economic case at all, not a thing. And in fact, it has pretty much gone backwards steadily, in my view, since that time. Joanna neatly identified part one and part two, you know, making the case and working out the mechanics of it. Part two doesn't matter until part one is done. And I think they're miles away from part one. Absolutely but, miles but, away. But Andy, Andy, <laughs> if, I, if I make, if I make, sorry, Joanna, just come in because I really, I was, I really want your, both of your views on this, really, but particularly Joanna's, because you mentioned part one and part two, Andy. There's actually a part before that, in my opinion, and that is your competence as a government. Whatever happens, if there's to be a, another referendum, and we heard from Joanna that there, there, there's different routes to independence, but if there's to be another referendum, the government proposing that referendum has to be viewed as competent. And sadly, just now, that competence has been called into question over a number of areas. And so one of the biggest challenges Hamza has is to regain that competence under the core responsibilities of devolution, health, education, and talk a good game and deliver on a good game on the green industrialization of our country, because that will answer part of your challenge, mm. Andy, as to the economics of independence. And I feel that the briefing that went on earlier on this week uh, about you know, the independence strategy being uh, a longer term game is something that we probably on this call recognize has to be the case, however reluctantly, uh, but that has to be the focus. Competent governments, are successful. Incompetent governments are not successful. And that has to be part of the formula. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, in fairness to my colleagues in government in Edinburgh, it is quite hard to look fresh and new when you've been in government for 15 years. Um, it, was, it was easier for us to look fresh and new and competent in 2014, although a lot of work went into that under the Salmond administration to be incompetent. I need to tell you that, Jeff. So it is hard to look fresh and new and competent. And I think the Tories do, uh, the Tories sometimes over-exaggerate problems in uh, Scottish domestic policy. And, and, you know, mirror images can be found in many aspects of English domestic policy. But what voters in Scotland care about is the domestic policies that are affecting them and, and uh, their families. So I do think that the party needs a, a huge reset on its approach to domestic policy. And I'm afraid to say that I'm in the, well, not afraid to say, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm in the camp of the party. I'm not really in the same camp as Fergus Ewing, because Fergus would be more to the right than me in economics. I'd be more to the left. But I agree with Fergus and some of my colleagues that really the green tail wagging the SNP dog has to stop, because we seem to have been landed with some really poor policies, you know, the fishing issue, the deposit return scheme that are poorly thought through and poorly executed. It's not that there aren't good intentions behind these policies. Of course there are, but that's not good enough. And I think, you know, evidence-based policymaking is something that the SNP really needs to get back to rather than ideology-based uh, policymaking. I, I, I can see Cal wants to come in, but I just, I just want to quickly say there is a bit of a connection, just a bit of a connection between our problems on domestic policy and our failure to answer these big questions on independence that we were talking about a minute ago. 
It's a sort of intellectual failure. The party's intellectually dead from the neck up at the moment. It's not been allowed to have an intellectual debate for years. It's been frowned upon, rubbished, marginalised. Fortunately, there are people within the party and many organisations out with the party but that have connections with the party, for example, the Commonweal Think Tank, that have been thinking very hard on some policy areas. And I'm just taking Commonweal as an example because they're probably most closely aligned to the nationalist left. There are other think tanks like Reform that are not so closely aligned to us but are bringing out stuff that the SNP should be looking at. But at last, hopefully, maybe, you know, Commonweal had the door shut in their faces and were actually monstered by some of those close to the previous leadership and had their position misrepresented. But now I'm delighted to see people like uh, Michelle Thompson and Ivan McKee and Kate Forbes working with Commonweal, thus giving the lie that somehow Kate Forbes is a right-wing politician. It's just rubbish, really. Uh, you know, working to bring forward some of these policies and try to get them into mainstream SNP thinking. And, and to his credit, uh, Hamza has said that he is is open to that. And, you know, I just want to take an example quickly. The, the poverty summit that I think Hamza is holding today. Now, this was a real style of Sturgeon government. There's a problem. So let's have a summit and bring lots of people together to discuss it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that, but there's an awful lot more to policy making than just setting up working groups and having summits. Sometimes you have to sort of rely on sort of boffins to get in a room and think through some really good ideas and then present them to the politicians and then the politicians have to, to test them properly. And I don't think that's, that's been going on in relation to domestic policy or in relation to making the policies to answer the questions that people want answered in independence. Mm. It's really fascinating, actually, just to hear you outline it, Joanna. And it strikes me, you know, we've been talking for, what, 20, 25 minutes or so. It just makes me wonder, do you do you feel like you belong in the SNP right now? Well, I, I'll not tell a lie. A lot of people have gone out of their way to make me feel like I don't belong. Mm. But people don't necessarily know that my SNP roots go back quite a long way. Um, as I said, I went to meetings with my dad when I was a wee girl in the 70s. Uh, together with John Swinney and Ian Blackford, I set up the Young Scottish Nationalist branch in Edinburgh in 1980. I was only 14 at the time, so I'm a wee bit younger than them. And then I became very disillusioned with the SNP uh, because of its swing to the right and the kicking out of the 79 group when I went off and joined the Labour Party when I was at my final year at school and was in the Labour Party for about 10 years. But I've been back supporting the SNP since the mid-90s. and I've been a member again for about 15, 16 years. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there are many elements of the way in which some people in the SNP behave now, which I don't think belongs to the SNP tradition. People forget that the SNP was founded in the 1930s by intellectuals, artists, poets, thinkers, former diplomats like Compton Mackenzie. You know, people with a, a rich hinterland. And I think there's an awful lot of people in the SNP just now who don't like debate, are, are, are afraid of, of debate and hostile to it and, and very insecure in their beliefs. So, yeah, sometimes it's hard for me to remain a member of the SNP, but I'm absolutely determined to do that because I think a small cohort of people have gone out of their way to try and make it, make it as difficult for me to stay as possible. And I feel that I've sort of outlived those I've outlived and outstayed those efforts and I'm looking forward to a, a different sort of future as we move away from the years of a very closed, inward-looking leadership and, and get back to having a more collegiate style of leadership, which I'm hoping will happen under Hamza. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On a kind of broader point of not feeling welcome and being made to feel unwelcome indeed, uh, we must talk about uh, The Stand Comedy Club, uh, which has said that key operational staff were unwilling to work with you at an event that is, I mean, it's one of Edinburgh Festival Fringe's most popular venues, isn't it, The Stand? And popular all year round, indeed. Uh, but staff say they didn't want to work with you at this event. Um, and it's been picked up in, in a lot of the uh, sort of commentary around... They didn't around feel comfortable. Comfortable. They don't feel comfortable working with me. Mm. How do you feel about that? That That's people aren't comfortable aren't comfortable to work with you? Well... A bit of context, first of all. Um, the stands take over the Newtown Theatre every Edinburgh Fringe and they hold a series, they have a series of events called In Conversation With. And earlier this year, at the turn of the year, Tommy Shepherd, who obviously used to be the owner of the stand, was still involved with it in an arm's length way. Tommy asked me if I'd like to take part in one of the In Conversation events this year. And I agreed. I'd done a In Conversation event with Matt Ford at the Fringe last year, which I really enjoyed doing. So... I agreed to do one at the stand. Uh, the promoter got in touch. Um, details were arranged for a time and a date. It was advertised. And then in March, a comedian appearing at the stand in Glasgow, uh, a trans woman, Bethany Black, announced that she was cancelling her gig at the stand comedy club in Glasgow because the stand comedy club in Edinburgh were platforming me. And she wrongly described me, and I, and I quote as someone who had dedicated their whole life to trying to exclude trans people from public life. Now, that's just a ludicrous statement with no basis in fact whatsoever. But there was a bit of a stooshy on Twitter. Mm. Uh, the national newspaper covered the event. I didn't dignify it with a comment and just let it go by. But clearly, this has been festering away in the background. And last Thursday, I received an email from the promoter saying that they were terribly sorry, but the stand, just checking the wording, they didn't want the, the event couldn't proceed um, They were because they were unable to provide adequate staffing. This is as a result of a number of the stand's key operational staff, including venue management and box office personnel, raising issues in relation to Joanna and not being comfortable working on the event. Now, from discussions I've had in the background, it's quite clear that this is linked to the Bethany Black cancellation and is linked to the uh, erroneous allegations that I am somehow transphobic. So how I feel about it mm. is, well, I'm not happy about it. I mean, apart from anything else, I had a really busy week coming up this week. 
And, uh, you know, today I've been meeting with the Prime Minister. I've been working for two years on a project to get some of the Afghan uh, female judges and prosecutors who were left behind in deep peril when Britain withdrew from Afghanistan to try and get them out of Afghanistan into the United Kingdom on visas. And I had a meeting with Rishi Sunak at lunchtime today to discuss that. And there's been a huge amount of meetings as a build-up to that. I've been meeting with the Foreign Office and representatives of the judges and also German counterparts because they've got a good scheme for weeks. And I had a heavy workload of meetings this week. Also, I chair the Joint Committee on Human Rights. We've got a number of big inquiries, a heavy meeting coming up later today. So having to deal with all this nonsense from the stand and all the publicity it's generated has been extremely time consuming and a bit upsetting. Mm. You know, nobody likes to be discriminated against. And what's happening here is I'm being discriminated against on the grounds of my beliefs because I'm a gender critical lesbian feminist. I don't believe in self ID and I think it's a bad idea. I have no problem with trans rights. I support equal rights for trans people. It'd be a bit surprising if as a human rights lawyer, a chair of a human rights committee and a lesbian who's been out for 30 years, I didn't believe it odd if I didn't support equal rights. Of course I support equal rights. And in fact, trans people in Scotland and the United Kingdom have equal rights as a result of the Equality Act, where there's a very widely drawn protected characteristic of gender reassignment, yeah. into which it is effectively possible, I think, to uh, self-identify. And so basically what the stand staff are doing is akin to them saying, uh, oh, we don't want Joanna performing uh, at the venue because we don't like her because she's a Catholic and we don't agree with Catholic people, or we don't like her because she's a Jew. Um, you know, people forget that one of the protected characteristics in the Equality Act is, is religion and belief. And there is authoritative case law in the United Kingdom that my opinions as a gender-critical feminist uh, are protected beliefs under the Equality Act. And as I said to Tommy Shepherd, I'm not prepared to go quietly. Yeah. I have to say, you know, just dealing with the stand issue, I find the whole thing utterly absurd. I really do. I've been, I live just around the corner in Dublin Street from the Stand Comedy Club for many, many years. And I frequented there in different stages of uh, sobriety on many occasions. <laughs> And the idea that people might feel uncomfortable or unsafe about some of the things that somebody on stage might say uh, is quite ridiculous. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, a, there's a, a quote that comes to mind that when I, I heard this story, you know, the, the truth of the matter is uncomfortable, doesn't equal unsafe, and disagreement does not equal danger. And where are we as a society if we can't disagree and air our views our legitimate views on whatever the, the subject is um, without fear of getting uh, cancelled. It is so, so unfortunate. But I suppose my question, uh, Joe, is, is how does this issue resolve itself? It has been completely shrouded in toxicity. Uh, we know the Scottish Government have, have pursued the Section 35 order, and perhaps you can comment on whether you think that will be successful or not. I suspect we know the answer. But assuming it's not, how do we get to some resolution without compromise, without disagreement and without some sort of honest debate? Well, you know, when I first became involved in this issue, my first stuck my head above the parapet as somebody with gender critical views in the spring of 2019. A constituent came to see me at surgery who was a trans woman. And initially we had a bit of a standoff because I think she probably assumed 
that I was transphobic or held anti-trans views. But when we started to talk, we realised that we weren't actually that far apart. And we both shared concerns about self-identification without safeguards and about the implications of the way the debate was being conducted even back there uh, three or four years ago. And so we ended up writing jointly to, I think it was Shirley Ann Somerville, who was the relevant minister at that time, proposing that the Scottish government should hold a citizens' assembly on the issue of gender recognition reform, because we felt that the debate was getting very polarised, that various voices weren't being heard, and that other societies have shown that where there's a very controversial issue, such as abortion in the Republic of Ireland, the holding of a citizens' assembly, where the parliament, in a sense, farms out the debates to a cross-section of society, they hear evidence, they deliberate, and they just don't hear evidence from certain groups, they hear evidence from anyone who wants to give them evidence, you know? They deliberate, and then they present a report to parliament, and parliament proceed on the basis of that report. I thought that was a great idea, and that was around about the time the SNP had just adopted the idea of holding citizens' assemblies, which I and Chris Hanlon had proposed at a conference, which Nicola endorsed. But I never got a favourable response to that proposal. And I think the only way this is going to be resolved in, in Scotland is by going back, not going back to the beginning, but having a process where everyone who has a concern feels that they have a stake and where there is proper consideration of human rights and equality law. I don't think the analysis of the bill that was carried out by the Holyrood Committee was a proper human rights analysis. They focused almost exclusively on the rights of trans people to the exclusion of, to the, of the rights of women and the rights of same-sex attracted people. As, as J.K. Rowling has said, without sex, there can be no same-sex attraction. And if we say that how people feel, what gender people feel they are, trumps the biological sex that they actually are, then it has really quite big implications for lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people. I don't think any of these issues were properly teased out at Hollywood. And even worse, those of us who wanted them teased out, those of us who attempted to address these issues, we were told by the First Minister, the former First Minister, that our concerns were not valid. And then we were called bigots, transphobes, and in one extraordinary podcast interview, homophobes and racists, most intemperate language from the leader of a country, and really, I think, grossly irresponsible. And it, you know, it has fed the toxicity of the debate. And I'm sick to the back teeth of being told that both sides are as bad as the other. Since I became involved in this, uh, I've lost my place on the SNP front bench. I've received a rape threat from a party member, never condemned by anyone in a position of influence in the party, despite the fact that he was convicted traipsing off to court again in a couple of months' time to give evidence against a trans rights activist who threatened to murder me. Um, and I've been frequently demonised in public, and now I'm facing no platforming. What I've had to go through as a powerful woman in a position of privilege as a politician is what many other women who don't have my power or my privilege are, are going through. Across the United Kingdom, women are losing contracts, women are losing jobs, women are being deplatformed because they won't bend the knee to self-identity ideology and they won't bend the knee to the idea that gender trumps sex. And so I feel it's my responsibility as a lesbian feminist in public life to stand up against the sort of discrimination I'm facing from the stand and to take them on. Because if I don't do that, what hope is there for women who don't have the same position in public life as I have? Mm. There's the issue with 
gender recognition legislation. And, you know, I think a lot of people, even those who voted for it, would acknowledge privately that there are problems with that that need to be fixed. There's also, in my view, as a father of four girls at school, there's an even larger problem in the background, which is the application of best practice when it comes to gender identity, which um, yeah. a lot of people don't know about. But I think if the population knew what was happening, what we were doing, particularly to girls in schools, they'd be in many cases horrified about what is happening in what, the background to girls mean, of what does that eight, mean? nine, ten years old. Well, there there is a culture yep. in some schools where children are almost being encouraged to actively choose what their gender is right. and where it is becoming exceptionally yep. easy for young girls in particular, because at that age it is mainly young girls, where it is becoming exceptionally easy for young girls to change their gender with very little discussion mm. um, and, and very little parental involvement. Yeah, and it's a it's a real it's a real concern for a lot yeah. of parents, which is not really out in the open yet. It must be said, not really out in the yeah. open yet. So I mean, I think that's I think that you know the whole gender. I get so one many issue, emails but... from parents about this issue, mm. and there've been a couple of really shocking examples of that happening in schools in my constituency where children have been trans behind their parents' backs, and siblings told not to speak to the parents about it. Wow. Um, and just this this notion of best practice, this, we hear this again and again. Uh, the Scottish Government constantly telling us that gender self-ID is international best practice. What does that actually mean? There is no human, no man has a human right to self-identify as a woman. Trans people have a human right not to be discriminated against and a human right to equality. But the whole point about the gender recognition self-ID legislation is it doesn't apply to trans people. You won't see the phrase trans at all. It applies to anyone, anyone, any man can self-identify as a woman with minimal protection, and there's no legal basis for that. Best practice is now replacing what is actually lawful in our schools, and that's actually deeply un undemocratic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, that's exactly... I, I really do think that if people knew what was going on in schools, they would be astonished by some of what's yeah. going on. That's, so, so that's one issue, and that is I, it's a very, very significant issue, it's t and it's really very difficult for the teachers as well, and I have to say it's very, very difficult for teachers. Um, so that's one issue. But the Stand Comedy Club issue, I think, almost has to be dealt with separately. This is an issue about free speech more than it's an issue about, uh, you know, the trans debate. We are getting to the point in this country where we are defining free speech as stuff that those in power believe in. And if you don't believe in those things which those in power believe in, then you're not really entitled to voice your opinion. That's very dangerous territory. Now, a lot of people might not like what Joanna thinks about trans rights, and a lot of people might not like what Joanna uh, believes in trans rights, and they might disagree with her very vehemently, and that's absolutely fine because they're entitled to do it. But Joanna's views are one side of a pretty mainstream argument. There's another side of that pretty mainstream argument, and that's fine, that should be had. But Joanna's views are one side of a pretty mainstream argument, they're, and they're not illegal. So they absolutely should be heard. And I think we are in danger, not just on this, but on lots of other, lots of other areas, of believing that those things that are um, not seen to be politically correct or fashionable are actually unacceptable. Mm. I mean, I'm not proud to say this, but on this particular issue, I mean, I'll do broadcast interviews on, on pretty much anything that anybody asks me to. On this issue, I'll be honest, I bottle it. 
because I feel like I just don't need the abuse that comes your way if you have any kind of nuanced view on this. And I don't take them. I just don't bother. Um, and it sometimes amazes me that people think that those who are slightly sceptical about trans rights have no power. I'm not convinced about that. I have all the power. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure they have too much power at all because they, they say very little about it. Yeah. I have to confess, uh, John, I heard you last night on STV talking about the need for uh, the public to speak out more. And I am not backward when, you know, in terms of coming forward, in terms of my views on a whole range of things. On this, I, I do sympathise with Andy's position because uh, one, I'm not as well rehearsed in the arguments on both sides as, as others. But secondly, uh, I know anything that I say could lead to uh, huge amounts of abuse on either side. And, and I find that actually, I'm guessing here, would be the situation with most people across the country, which is why I say again, that we need to find a way, whatever the compromise is, whatever the solution is to this problem, we're going to have to find a way to get folk round the table and take the toxicity out of it. Because I suspect there's a huge swathe of the general public in our country that are looking at this going, it's not for me, guys, mm. yeah. when it is actually important to society. Well, and, and that worries me. And I'm, I'm just struck, just to jump in, Joanne. I am because, going to have to go and vote. Oh, are you voting? Is I'm that, really that, sorry. No, go I'm for really it. sorry. I've got to vote and it's a... It's three votes, and then I have to go and chair my committee. Oh, go and do your thing. <laughs> Joanna, can you, can, can, you, can, can you in 30 seconds ask this question? Um, answer this question. Will we ever see you at Holyrood as an MSP? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, and we've got an exclusive. <laughs> uh, Joanna, go and, go and vote quick before you take it back. Go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that, that is Joanna Cherry, MP, uh, soon to have an extra letter in there by the sound of it. Uh, gosh, right, well, there's all of a sudden lots to process. And we'll just kind of rattle through a couple of these just for a bit of post-match analysis almost with you both. She said in there that leaders have got, have got some responsibility and she, Nicola Sturgeon has got some responsibility to bear for the division that exists when it comes to these sorts of free speech issues. And it makes me think of Kate Forbes, Jeff, in, in the leadership contest, where she was set upon by uh, fellow SNP politicians, members, etc., for expressing her views. I'm just wondering if we need to consider that, actually, the, the responsibility of political leaders here. Yeah, look, uh, it was funny when you said that, Callum. I was thinking about... Uh, Kate Force to, to a degree, and actually I broke cover pretty early on um, uh, when uh, Kate was facing quite a lot of criticism for espousing her own personal views, uh, not least because she had actually been in government for a number of years and never sought to impose them on anyone else. But I think it goes back to Andy's point, does it not, that we've got to find a way to try and disentangle uh, the two to a certain degree and recognise that people are welcome to their own beliefs. And just because they hold them doesn't make them bad people necessarily. Most of our fellow citizens operate in what I'd say is a grey area. Mm. They'll look at elements of one side of a debate and go, yeah, I would align with that. And they might take a completely ideological different view on another side of a debate. And they're not wrong to do that. And our politics, I fear, right now is being played far too much out as... Uh, one or the other, where the reality is a lot of people are in the middle. Mm. And 
I think it's really problematic for our discourse. I really do. Yeah. Andy, yeah. Do, you, and, and, yeah, do you and, see it you know, in, yeah, in, in, in real life, in political party life, that actually politicians yeah, are struggling of, to, absolutely. to navigate that grey area that Jeff describes? Yeah, there's no question about it. You know, we have narrowed our debate in this country very, very significantly. Um, and if you don't believe in the stuff that's cool to believe in, then you've got a problem. You know, you have a problem at that point. Even if we go, let's take it out. This is a toxic issue of gender recognition. Take it out of that completely. We talked about David Frost earlier on. Mm. He doesn't believe in devolution. Now, that's a niche view, right? That is a less than 10% of the population view. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a legitimate thing. You can believe there should be a centralised parliament at Westminster and there shouldn't be any other devolution anywhere else. That's not wrong. It's not illegal. There's nothing, it's nothing wrong with having that view. It's not a view that's going to get you a lot of votes. It's not a view I agree with. It's not a view Jeff agrees with. But it's a view, and there's nothing wrong with having it. But that, you can take minority views in Scotland, and you will very often be castigated for having those views because they are not seen to be uh, acceptable. They are, dare I say it, they are not seen to be Scottish. In some cases, That's you know, we will quite often label people as somehow anti-Scottish if they don't believe in high taxes. You know, if they don't believe in things that are seen to be um, protected by Scottish features. And I just think we have to get away from that completely because we don't debate well in this country anymore. And you've just seen it. And hats off to Joanna, right? Joanna and I wouldn't agree on absolutely everything but hats off to her because Jeff and I have admitted in this podcast that we duck gender recognition. We duck it. We both do. I didn't realise Jeff did as well. I'm quite heartened that he does. <laughs> um, I tell you who doesn't duck it. Joanna Sherry doesn't duck it. Yeah. She does not duck it. You know, she, she believes that something needed to be said. And she said earlier on in the podcast, she thinks she has a responsibility to say that. And you don't have to think she's right. You don't have to think. You can think she's, you can aggressively think she's wrong but you should also aggressively defend her right to say it. Yeah. And I agree with that. And and and, and there's those on the other side of, of Joanna Cherry's views of this debate who are equally as passionate, which it's just about and finding a way so, to channel so that, that passion. Right. Because I, I was going to say, because how then, how then can we be critical of those who don't want to work at the Stand Comedy Club? Aren't they just on the other side of this and they are channeling their right to disagree by saying, I'm not going near her, I don't want to work there? But that's, what I, but, 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 but that, that's why I said earlier on about disagreement and, and, and finding it absurd. You've got to be able to respect other people's views and opposing view held. There is no other way to do democracy, guys. Um, and just because Joanna Cherry holds certain views that, that the staff at the stand may disagree with, does not and should not allow them to say, I'm not going to work on that basis. And my point earlier on, I don't know if I made it clumsily or not, was you're going to have a lot of comedians, performers, artists going through the doors of the stand uh, all the time saying things that members of staff won't agree with. Yeah. So why should it be any different for Joanna Cherry, who's an elected parliamentarian? And we've got to find a, a, an area, I keep saying this, but... Ultimately, if we're going to get progress on this issue, any progress in this issue, and, and, and Joanna wasn't able to say uh, she had to leave for the division bill, uh, whether she viewed, uh, viewed the Section 35 order as likely to succeed or not, but let's assume it doesn't, we're back at square one, and this issue will still be live. So, mm -hmm. to my mind, I can only see compromise through disagreement and debate uh, as the way forward, and it's going to have to be that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, just want to do a quick mention. We've literally got two minutes um, because Hamza Yusuf today, and we should, you know, kind of focus on what he's up to as well in the midst of the turmoil. Uh, but he has been talking about pausing the rollout of universal free school meals. He's been drawing on the example that he, as first minister, can afford to pay basically for his, for you know, for school meals. Um, uh, Andy, what is this about? What is this? Is this simply an, in inverted commas, an easy way? for Hamza Yusuf to diverge from, from Sturgeon and to try to be a bit different. And this is sort of taking a Sturgeon thing and saying, no, I'm not doing that. Well, I, I think it's a bit more thoughtful than that. I think this is actually really fascinating. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a kind of enforced divergence because of what's going on with the police investigation and so on. Yeah. But I think we're getting to the point where it's very hard anymore to call Hamza Yusuf the continuity candidate. He is actually taking stances that Nicola Sturgeon didn't take at all. He is much closer to the business community. He's been working very hard with Neil Gray on the business community and making a pretty good impression on the business community too. Um, at the weekend there, he's talking about a new independence strategy, which is a much longer term thing. Again, a little bit more like Kate Forbes has been talking about during the campaign. And now you've got universal free school meals, which is a shibboleth in the SNP. I mean, I, I was really quite shocked to read that uh, this morning, actually. So I think this is more than just lip service. I think this is uh, Hamza and his team strategically looking at what wasn't working and changing it. Um, and, you know, interestingly, it's exactly what Jeff talked about earlier in the podcast. They are, they look to me like they are trying to be a better government and trying to run things better so that people have a better regard for independence. They're clearly assessing the policy landscape and seeing where they think they can advance uh, issues they're also very conscious i think that's what this one tells me specifically is that money is tight mm. uh, for them uh, uh, particularly in operational expenditure and so they're going to have to be looking at things very closely in terms of their budget but i think it has to be done in a and in andy said strategic they thought it, he thought it was pretty strategic i'm not so sure you know you, you've kind of thrown away a bit of a a bone to the daily record this morning. Is that the policy of the government? And what does it mean for other universal services? I think you have to do it a little bit more structured than that and a little bit more pronounced if it's going to be a policy direction of your government. But it's certainly an indication of things that are perhaps about to come. And if that is the case, then things will get interesting uh, on the on the domestic public policy platform. Jeff and Andy, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to Joanna Cherry, who we interrupted for a little while on her parliamentary day before she had to leg it to actually take part in a vote and go and do her parliamentary duties. Lovely to have her on. Uh, your thoughts on what you've heard from Joanna, from Jeff and from Andy, always welcome. You can email anytime. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. We're here every Wednesday for you, so we'll speak to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.